From the studios of KPCW in Park City, it's This Green Earth, a weekly talk show about the environment and our relationships with it. I'm Chris Cherniak. And I'm Claire Wiley. And on this morning's show, we have three guests joining us. First is John Marsloff, who is a professor emeritus of wildlife science and an ornithologist who comes on to discuss his highly acclaimed book, The Gifts of the Crow, how perception, emotion, and thought allow smart birds to behave like humans. Then Zach Frankel, executive director at the Utah Rivers Council, breaks down a recent Senate bill that if passed and signed by the government, he says will create a new council of water lobbyists to advance Bear River development and Lake Powell pipeline, potentially in the absence of public oversight or transparency. Finally, Summit County Lands and Natural Resources Director Jess Kirby will join us to give us updates on the environmental research she and her ambassadors are performing at the Your Ranch and 910 properties. Environmental awareness and education. That's what this green earth is all about. Stay with us. Welcome to This Green Earth, a weekly talk show about our relationships with and impacts upon the environment. I'm Chris Cherniak. And I'm Claire Wiley. And our first guest we're excited to have on it is John Marsloff, who is a professor emeritus of wildlife science at the University of Washington and an ornithologist. And John, thank you so much for joining us on the show this morning. My pleasure, Claire and Chris. Yeah. Great. Well, first off, John, uh, you are a professor and an ornithologist. Um, can you break down a little bit of what an ornithologist is and tell us about yourself and what led you into this profession? Sure. An ornithologist studies birds. And in particular, I study the relationship of birds to people, uh, either responding natively to our activities like um, logging or recreation uh, in some of our more pristine lands or positively to the supplements we put out on the, the land. Um, some of our waste products are used by birds like ravens um, and their inner relationship with people, very close coevolution with uh, the behavior of some species that live in our cities with people that live there and either treat them positively or negatively. And you have penned a new book called The Gifts of the Crow, How Perception, Emotion, and Thought Allow Smart Birds to Behave Like Humans. And in it, you kind of break down the family of corvids, which includes crows, ravens, and also blue jays. Can you tell us about this family of birds? Sure. It's a uh, quite a diverse family of songbirds. The raven, actually, the largest member of that family is the largest songbird in the world. But it includes the jays, nutcrackers as well. You have Clark's nutcrackers up in Park City, magpies. Uh, there's about 150 species worldwide, and they live on all continents except Antarctica. And I think people are very familiar with magpies here in our community. And um, I think Unfortunately. it's... Unfortunately. Oh, poor magpies. <laughs> now, they do get a bad rap here, um, but I think it's because of what you will describe for us. They are a bit of a scavenger, but they also... I People talk about them teasing their animals, uh, but you maybe describe it a little bit differently than teasing. They do interact with other species of animals. So can you kind of break down some of the interesting attributes that this family of birds corvids have yeah first off they're they're very generalist so they can take advantage of lots of different situations mm -hmm. the things we build the foods we put out um, they can they can make do with whatever we're doing to the environment some species 
do a lot better around us, like crows and magpies and, and ravens even, and others shy away from us, like some of the more tropical jays and even species that are highly endangered, like the Mariana crow and the Hawaiian crow. But uh, they all share, in addition to this generality, um, they share a large brain for their body size, much more on par with primates than with other birds. So they also have extremely densely packed neurons in their brain. Uh, so they, they can solve problems. They use insight to solve problems. They remember details of things that happened when and use that to go about their daily lives. Most of them are social to some extent, so they learn from one another as well as through their own experiences. Yeah, you, you describe these birds um, as being able to, like you say, think, but also to actually plan and even reconsider their actions. Go go into a little bit about how how they plan and how, as a as a scientist, you observe that or determine that. Yeah, it's extremely difficult to yeah. determine some of these higher cognitive functions because unfortunately we can't have a conversation with these birds like we can with one another but for planning for example you see some rudimentary sorts of planning that's probably not involving a lot of thought when when these animals cache food they often when they have surplus will store it in the ground or in the trees for later use and that can be very hardwired, very robotic of a behavior, but they do know where they put things. They remember where they put things uh, by forming connections in the part of their brain that we would use to form such memories, and that's their hippocampus. And we know that this organ or this part of the brain, I should say, uh, increases when animals are learning new things and storing food, for example, mm -hmm. that's been demonstrated in chickadees and Clark's nutcrackers and it shrinks as they retrieve and, and do away with those memories, retrieve those caches and kind of cancel out that information. So to some extent, that planning in involves an important cognitive process, memorizing the location um, down to the, to the inch where they put these seeds in the ground and recover hundreds of thousands of them throughout the year, the nutcracker does. And the you, other sorry. interesting, there's another really interesting experiment on planning that shows it even better, and that mm -hmm. was using some scrub jays in um, in England. And the researchers there allowed scrub jays to, to enter a couple of different parts of their cage. Some parts they would always have food in the morning and some parts they wouldn't. Hmm. And when they entered the, uh, the, when they had the opportunity to store food in those places, they didn't store it in the places where they always got food in the morning, but instead they stored it in the places where they didn't get food. So they were, cognizant of uh, reward coming uh, in the future and planning uh, where to put food to be able to take advantage or uh, the advantage of the lack of that reward in some situations. And you have some humid and corvid interaction stories and one involves um, Dick Cheney in a way. Can you tell us mm -hmm. this story? Sure. Um, you know, sometimes you do these experiments that you don't expect anybody to pay attention to, and, and this one has gotten a lot of attention. But we always were kind of uh, kind of felt like after we handled the birds we were studying to, to tag them so that we could identify them later or go to their nest to monitor their productivity, that they kept an eye on us and they responded differently to us after we had had such an encounter with them. So we did an experiment where we captured seven birds on our university campus 
and we captured them wearing a caveman mask so that we thought, well, well, that'll be neat. We'll walk around later and we'll wear that mask and see if they respond and compare that response to either us wearing no mask or wearing a, a control mask, which we wanted to be similar to the caveman. So we selected Dick Cheney, who was the vice president at the time. And this was 17 years ago when we caught these birds. And I can report that as of last week, uh, there were still responses to the caveman mask, who is the perceived dangerous mask, mm. dangerous person, uh, and not to the Dick Cheney mask. Uh, so the birds now that we had initially captured with that caveman mask um, are all dead. None of them are on our campus. Uh, the last one died last year. She was at least 19 years old. Mm. But um, they have continued to respond strongly um, throughout our experiment, suggesting um, that information about this dangerous new person that walks around every once in a while, once a year, um, that this information has been transferred socially as others see other crows scold uh, is what they do. They scold and mob us when we wear that caveman mask. And this information really sticks with any other crow that seems to see it. And they carry this with them and trust basically that this person was dangerous and therefore I'm going to make sure I alert all of the other crows to his presence whenever he comes out on campus. So they have ability to pass on information, otherwise educate uh, uh, younger broods about, in this case, this, this caveman mass, this, this danger, let's call it. Um, yeah. is, that, is that different from other non-corvids? No, other social birds often learn from one another. Right. Um, that's an advan one of the advantages of being social. I mean, we do it to the, to the extreme. Uh, but uh, corvids are good at it because they often are in social groups and they often collectively gather to either spend the night where they could learn from one another about resources available or to uh, harass danger where they can be learning from this activity about a new danger or the occurrence or, or location of a particular danger. So they, they're, they're ideally set up to do this, but other social birds do as well. We're speaking with John Marsloff. He's Professor Emeritus of Wildlife Science at the University of Washington, and the author of the book, Gifts of the Crow, How Perception, Emotion, and Thought Allow Smart Birds to Behave Like Humans. So let's talk about um, their literal verbal language. All birds have, well, I guess some people would argue whether it's a form of language or just a form of communication. But um, talk about the, the corvids' ability to communicate with each other. And is that at, that at a higher level than other birds? Yeah, I, I think it is at a higher level. Um, their communication to us sounds like noise right. <laughs> more than, than a pretty song, right? Uh, for the most part, they croak or caw or rattle. Uh, but each of those um, sorts of utterances have important meanings. And we are just beginning to understand what those meanings are. Uh, my wife, Colleen, and I studied ravens in Maine many years ago, and mm. we had captive ravens that we knew uh, and recorded all of their vocalizations under various situations. And we learned that a given call has a lot of different meanings depending on who gives it, when it's given, what mm. the circumstances are around that utterance. So there's a ton of complexity 
uh, in these calls. And so you just, you hear one thing and you think, oh, what does that rattle mean? For example, like this morning, I stepped out of my house and a raven was rattling to me and I rattled back to her and we kind of went back and forth and, and she took off calling. And it's like, you know, I don't know if she really responded to me or what she was really saying. I think she was just kind of an excited state, hmm. but I don't know what it was that excited her and, and what other information might've been conveyed. Her identity, her position, uh, lots of other things like that are conveyed in these calls. And perhaps over time, as um, they learn to adapt to, let's say, different uh, ecological settings, like you say, they they can adapt, uh, they live in rural settings, but they maybe adapt to suburban settings and, of course, urban settings. Is it possible that there's different languages, a different set of communication, depending on what setting they're in? I don't know if it's so much the setting that's possible. I mean, we know that um, the sound environment mm -hmm. kind of influences the frequency of calls, the, the strength of the call, maybe the um, the tone of the call so that it penetrates forested areas, for example, better than open areas. So some of that could could certainly inform the uh, the structure of the call and it could sound a little different. There could also be, I think, more likely individual differences. And I think a lot of these birds, because they are long lived, you know, like I said, that one crow, 19 years, mm. that's um, that's up there for sure for these birds. But still, um, they develop nuances uh, and idiosyncratic behaviors mm -hmm. throughout their lives. And some of those are vocalizations. So uh, you might have one bird that sneezes, kind of a sneezing like call all the time. Another mm. one that uh, gives a particular kind of sound like dripping water or a barking dog. And they might use that to, again, convey their um, their presence, their identity to their lifelong mate or to others that are around their territory. Uh, you mentioned the, this, that one crow lived for 19 years. Is, that, uh, is there an average or range of, of lifespan? And do they uh, pair up and mate for life? I mean, most young birds die uh, either in the nest or shortly thereafter. But yeah. once they make it uh, for the first year or so of life, then, yeah, I think you could expect a typical age somewhere between five and ten years. Um, they are preyed upon by owls and, and golden eagles and things like that. Mm. And, of course, they're, um, they're shot in many places by people. So their lifespans are cut short in that way. But I think somewhere around 20 years for a crow or magpie, maybe up to 30 for a raven is kind of the max that we typically see in the wild. You, you have lots of variation around that, but that would be kind of the maximum. And they do pair for life. All yeah. the corvids form very strong pair bonds. Um, and typically those pairs defend a territory and often the birds that aren't paired kind of are vagrant and, and move over large areas without defending space. And now they are omnivores, correct? And so maybe speak to that and also what direct effects on their environment or how do they interact with their environment and how do they affect the environment? They are omnivores uh, eating everything from insects and, and bison patties and cow patties hmm. to catching small rodents, uh, even, even ground squirrel sized rodents and snakes and things like that. Um, to eating uh, vegetable matter, grains. Uh, they are scavengers, as we mentioned earlier, on dead animals. And so their influence on their environment is 
is first and foremost as scavengers um, that they basically clean up the the leftovers that are killed by predators or by our vehicles they also are very important dispersers of seeds the clark's nutcracker for example is responsible for dispersing white bark pine which we know is endangered at this time and doesn't move around in its environment without a bird to gather its large wingless seeds and and plant them in the ground some distance away from the parent tree um, they also uh, being predators and being generalist predators can affect other species through predation. And some of those are rare species like the desert tortoise uh, or the sage grouse, in, in which case uh, the incidental predation on their chicks or eggs or young by ravens, for example, can, can be a, um, another threat to that species. Hmm. And then if we move into the actual title of your book, The Gifts of the Crow, can you talk about the actual gifting acts that you've seen in crows? Yeah, it's kind of a wild uh, behavior. And I remember when I first was contacted by a man who was feeding crows in his yard, um, I was I was pretty skeptical of it. He said that he he fed, fed these birds every day and asked them once, hey, I feed you all the time. Why don't you give me something mm -hmm. back? And he found this candy conversation Valentine heart on his feeder later that day that had the word love on it. Oh. And it was like, oh, this is crazy. There's no way <laughs> birds right. are doing this. Um, but we checked it out, and indeed, um, that was really the only explanation. And, and he had some other gifts, uh, little bits of cement or, or pine cones and things that were on his feeder after the crows had been there. Um, and, and then once we, we kind of publicized that, we started getting all kinds of uh, images from people that have uh, had things left at their, typically at their feeding station or perhaps in a very conspicuous place after they've done something good to the bird, like one one man would put mice out for magpies on a barrel in his shed, and then on that barrel would be shiny things, you know, after the magpies took the mice. Another woman freed a crow from the fence, and, a, and then a crow started bringing her gifts like you know, the head of a shrew or a, or a, a baby bird's body, um, kind of more the typical bonding sort of exchange right. you might expect between two corvids now seem to be going on between a corvid and a person. Well, so somewhat could be interpreted as a, a measure of kind of thankfulness or gratitude, which leads me to a text I got, uh, a person asking whether or not birds like these, crows and ravens and other corvids, can actually express measures of empathy or sympathy uh, for within the pa within their social order. Yeah, it's um, it's possible. There are some experiments done in in Austria uh, that demonstrated in a captive group where you could see this again. To see this in the wild would be extremely tough. Hmm. But in a captive situation, after individual uh, ravens and and jackdaws got in skirmishes they would then the the losers would be consoled by other members of that group and they go over there and preen them where they take their beaks and run them through their feathers to hmm. remove lice and it's kind of a soothing bonding sort of behavior so there there's some evidence of that in in these more controlled situations where individuals might have formed strong bonds with all the members of a group to see that in the wild as i said um is is hard to do but it's certainly possibly occurring yeah, and, and the, the closest example I have or anecdote I have is a 
uh, a magpie that had died that recently passed. And, of course, a number of other magpies were in the trees around it calling or so. But then a couple came down and actually landed near the magpie, the, the dead magpie and maybe even, like, brushed up against it or, or I don't know, otherwise poked it or so. Um, I don't know if that, what, what you know, obviously they, they recognize something is wrong, um, but is there something more to it than just that? There are reports from Colorado of magpies actually bringing sticks uh, and putting them around a dead magpie mm. like that. We did a lot of experiments. Kaylee Swift and I did experiments on crows in, in this funeral behavior. And we laid out taxidermy crows that look dead. And um, we recorded behaviors of the birds. And they're extremely stimulated by the sight of a dead bird uh. like that. They will gather. We showed through experiments and through brain imaging research that one of the aspects of this is uh, the formation of memory and learning about um, a novel situation where it is extremely dangerous. So learning about the place and the person involved with the with this dead crow is all done and um, stimulates again in, uh, activity in the hippocampus of the bird, not activity in the amygdala where you would think it would be if it was an extremely emotional response. So it's still possible that again, these lifelong uh, mates, when they lose one of those individuals, that there might be a very empathetic response when that mate of, of an individual might have been with it for 10 or 15 years, sees that individual dead. Uh, we weren't able to show that in an experimental way yet. Okay. Well, it's all very fascinating, and hopefully uh, we use the word empathy now uh, when we are approaching the magpies that are in our lives. I say unfortunate with respect to magpies just because I'm not a big fan of their call. Oh, well, I, 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 I love blue jays calls and, and uh, scrub jays calls. It's, oh, man, but I you can't be a corvid elitist work on, about I'm this. I'm just, I'm a, just <laughs> being overly judgmental with respect to their call, Professor. <laughs> so I love think, your magpies. Yeah, okay. love your magpies. I think it's a good message overall to, to love those animals around us. But thank you so much, John. It's super interesting read. It's called... Gifts of the Crow, How Perception, Emotion, and Thought Allow Smart Birds to Behave Like Humans. And where can people go to find more information about you and to get this book? You can get the book uh, through any of the online uh, resources or in, in a lot of bookstores. Um, you can find out more about our work at the Avian Conservation Laboratory at the University of Washington. Hmm. Our website has links to um, a lot of the primary research we've done and a little bit about us. Well, Great. John Marsloff, Professor Emeritus of Wildlife Science at the University of Washington and an ornithologist himself, thank you so much for being on the show with us this morning. Thanks, John. My pleasure. All right. Let's take a break. We come back. We'll speak with Zach Frankel. He's the executive director at the Utah Rivers Council, and we'll be talking about, among other things, a Senate bill uh, that might have impact on Bear River and Lake Powell pipeline construction and development. It's This Green Earth. We'll be right back. Welcome back to This Green Earth, a weekly talk show about our relationships with and impacts upon the environment. I'm Chris Cherniak. And I'm Claire Wiley. And yesterday, uh, Claire and I had a chance to speak with Zach Frankel, 
He's the executive director at the Utah Rivers Council, and uh, we're talking. We'll talk with him. Uh, we spoke with him about, among other things, a Senate bill that uh, kind of uh, addresses uh, the, the possibility of a council of water lobbyists to advance Bear, Bear River development and Lake Powell pipeline. I'll leave it at that. Uh, here is our conversation we had with Zach yesterday. Zach Frankel, thank you so much for joining us this morning on This Green Earth. Thank you for having me, Chris and Claire. It's great to be with you. Why don't we start here? Give us a little background on yourself and the Utah Rivers Council. So I'm the executive director of the 501c3 Rivers Council, which we started way back 30 years ago to work on water and river and lake issues in the state of Utah. We spent a lot of time inside Utah's state house and we work with local governments to conserve water as well. All right, and speaking of governments, the state uh, legislature is in session for at least, I believe, another two or three weeks or so. You can give us the details on that, but you've been following any and all bills uh, associated with water, uh, one that, that uh, uh, has a lot of interest with the Utah Rivers Council, we'll say, is Senate Bill 211, I believe. Is that It's called the Generational Water Infrastructure Amendments. Can you talk a little bit yeah. about that? Yeah, so this legislative session is finally coming to a close. It's one of the worst legislative sessions we've had in Utah for the Great Salt Lake in eight years. And SB 211 is the worst bill we've seen for that reason. That SB 211 is an anti-democratic bill that allows water lobbyists seeking to divert the waters of the Great Salt Lake to have a secretive development council that gets to meet with the Senate president, the speaker of the house, and the governor to plan the advancement of new water diversions, but without having to alert the public about their meetings, about what is discussed, or about any records they create. So the state house has created this new effort, which is completely shielded from any public oversight whatsoever. And right now there is oversight for, uh, let's say, uh, meetings or discussions along these lines? Yeah. So right now, if a government agency or a collection of government agencies, you know, get together and meet, you know, those, those meetings are subject to public oversight. The mm -hmm. Utah Open and Public Meetings Act, the Government Records Access Management Act, these are the sunshine laws that allow members of the Utah public to know what their government is doing. And so these kinds of public oversight controls are, are common. When, of course, anybody who's been to a city council or a county commission, you know, we see them go into what's called a closed door session and those closed door sessions are where the local government or state government can have a conversation that it should be shielded from the public, right. but at least we know they're meeting. 
Well, unfortunately, under SB 211, that will be the norm that there are these closed-door meetings to plan new water diversions of the Great Salt Lake at all times. There hmm. will never be public meetings according to this statute. Who, so it's... I'm sorry, yeah. who, who's who's sponsoring this bill and and what might be their motivation? Yeah, so, you know, that's a real important tell, Chris, because... The bill is sponsored by the two most powerful legislature legislators in the Utah legislature, which, of course, is the Senate president and the Speaker of the House. So in about the last five or six years, there have only been three times when both the sitting Speaker of the House and Senate president have co-sponsored legislation. And two of those times were to advance water bills. And so what that means is two things. So first of all, when the Speaker of the House and the Senate President co-author and co-sponsor legislation together, it is virtually guaranteed to pass. It means that no legislator mm. is gonna oppose them because they will suffer their own repercussions to their own legislation that they wish to pass. And it also speaks to the fact that the water lobbyists in the Utah legislature are the most powerful special interests that we have in our state house. And that's why Utah State has such terrible history on water. That's why we're the country's number one highest per person municipal water user because we have all these taxes that lower our water prices. That's why we're proposing some of the largest and most destructive new water projects in the United States. And that's why Utah is perceived as being decades behind the advancement of other states when it comes to having legislation to encourage water conservation at the local level. So if it's uh, established, who might be the members of this water council and what would be their topics <laughs> that they would be yeah, considering the, there are five agencies that are part of this um, shadowy water development council and those five agencies are the water agencies that are proposing bear river development mm -hmm. and the lake powell pipeline so bear river development is a four to five billion dollar water project that would divert the single largest water source to the Great Salt Lake, the Bear River, and Lake Powell Pipeline's the single largest new water project proposed anywhere in the seven-state Colorado River Basin. Those five water agencies are the Utah Division of Water Resources, which is the official project applicant for both of those projects and has been working to advance both of those water projects for the last 15 years, and the Washington County Water District, the Central Utah Water District, the Jordan Valley Water District, and the Weber Basin Water District. So those five water agencies are some of the wealthiest um, agencies in the state of Utah because they have vast collections of both property taxes and water sales, and they have a huge lobbying force that they're spending alongside their public relations campaign of paid marketers to to convince Utahns that these projects are a good idea. Mm. So if these water projects do go through, what are the consequences that we will see? Really good question, Claire. So um, if 
Bear River development is allowed to proceed, there will be a myriad of impacts. So at $4 billion, there will be massive rate increases to the agencies receiving that water, which includes um, the taxpayers in Summit County who are paying um, taxes to the Weber Basin Water District. And of course, all the rate increases that will accrue to uh, the Wasatch Front. Most notably, if Bear River development is approved, it will lower the Great Salt Lake several feet in additional elevation loss in coming years and shrink down the lake. That in turn has its own myriad of impacts that will dry up a vast quantity of wetlands providing habitat for eight to 10 million migratory birds across 330 species traveling from every country in the Americas. It will expose vast playas of Great Salt Lake dust, which will um, get airborne during wind events and cause pulmonary illnesses to Wasatch Front residents unlucky enough to be forced to breathe that dust when it um, comes onto our airsheds. And of course, the Lake Powell pipeline, in turn, a 140 mile long pipeline has a bevy of impacts. It will reduce the water quantities available to existing Utah water users by putting that water into the Lake Powell pipeline. It will impact pristine lands along a southern Utah and northern Arizona along that 150 mile, excuse me, 140 mile long pipeline corridor. And of course it will lead to massive water rate increases on the unlucky residents in Washington County. Economists estimate those rate increases could be 500%. So, so what we really have with these two projects is a, a, a litany of special interests in our Utah legislature that are eager to spend a total of some $8 billion in new construction costs financed over decades that will have impacts to all working Utahns. Uh, just a couple more minutes. Who, obviously, like you say, we have sponsors for this bill, but who else supports this? Organizations or institutions or uh, developers? Who would you say, give a quick list of those who support this bill? Well, there's an array of contractors, of course, that would love to get a portion of that $8 billion in spending. Mm -hmm. So those are everything from the contracting companies that are building pipelines to collecting, you know, materials for those construction to array of hard hat industries that want to receive a portion of the public taxpayer dollars that are slated to be invested in the projects. Ironically, however, though, poll data shows the majority of Utahns do not support these projects. And especially they don't support the shrinking of the Great Salt Lake. Yeah. So, you know, this is not an uncommon thing in America. As Americans, we are acclimated to the idea that special interests are inside our halls of government influencing spending to their own personal benefit at the detriment of you know the public interest whether that is our personal health or whether that is the environment or both as we're experiencing here on the great salt lake mm. this is not news to us as americans but i think that as utahns we often find that people are surprised to learn 
that there are substantial special interests inside the water sphere inside the Utah State House. Right. And so we, we need Utahns to be vigilant in right. trying to speak to their legislators to hold them accountable for supporting these bills. Um, listeners can find more on our website, utahrivers.org, or we also have a specific website on the Great Salt Lake for folks that are interested in our campaign work there. And it's called uh, 4200gsl.org, referring to the desire to raise the Great Salt Lake back up to 4,200 feet above sea level. Right. All right. So it's uh, again, it's SB 211 for those who want to do a search on on the bill and the specifics of it. Um, one last quick, quickly, one last question is it if the bill passes, it's got to go to the governor. Has the governor given any indication that he would support it or maybe veto it? I haven't heard the governor opine about the matter, but I would be very surprised if this governor would oppose something sponsored by the Senate president and the Speaker of the House. But uh, it's worth contacting the governor's yes. office and asking Governor Cox to veto the measure for its anti-democratic nature. You know, we as Utahns deserve to know what's being discussed in these rooms. It's not just about public information. It's about trying to provide public oversight on how our government uses our funds. All right, Zach Frankel, Executive Director with the Utah Rivers Council. Zach, thanks so much for uh, informing us on this bill, and we'll probably follow up uh, once the session is over regarding this bill and probably others that we'll chat about. So thanks again for joining thank us this morning. Thank you, Chris and Claire. It's been great to be here again. Welcome back to This Green Earth, a weekly talk show about our relationships with and impacts upon the environment. I'm Chris Cherniak. And I'm Claire Wiley. And joining us remotely because I believe she's still in traffic, maybe because you can give us a traffic update too, is Jess Kirby. She's the Summit County Lands and Natural Resources Director. She's here to talk about um, the work she's doing uh, on the Ewer Ranch and perhaps 910 property too. Jess, can you hear us? I can hear you. Can you hear me? Uh, yes, perfect. Actually, let's Great. start there. Where You're in traffic. Where are you? Give us a traffic I report. I actually am at Quinn's Junction. I left my house at Summit Park at 8.30, and I just made it to Quinn. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so it is, Powder uh, panic. it is a backup out there. Okay. So, all right. It's just a, a lot of heavy traffic, maybe in a, some accident or something but anyway just to let people know yes. if you're coming into town i think it's heavy traffic and it's both ways because 224 is also very backed up okay so and there's accidents on the frontage road there's accidents on i-80 there's not i didn't see an accident on 40 but it, everything is so it's a psa down. to be careful out there right now or don't try to get on the road for a while if you can if you can have the patience because we all know why you're coming up here because there's no shortage of snow and the ski conditions are great. Um, but that's not why you're here. You're here to talk about the work you're doing as the Summit County Lands and Natural Resources Director with respect to, among other pieces of property, your ranch and the 910 property. Let's start with uh, your ranch. That's your U-R-E ranch for our listeners. What work are you doing with respect to that land? Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, so the your ranch, not your ranch, mm -hmm. um, is 
834 acres, um, and it's uh, located in between Salt, I'm sorry, uh, Park City and Camas Valley, just as you go up and over past 2A. Um, we have had that under options since last year and are working really diligently to get that to the closing. I think the most exciting news lately that um, has already been shared by Summit Lands Conservancy is that they have secured um, through a partnership with Summit County um, an ALE grant, which is an agricultural lease grant for the 185 acres that is north of uh, the, the highway there that goes through the valley. Um, and so that is now in the process of getting a conservation easement in place. Um, it could take up to a year for us to get that funding, but it was a 75, 25% grant. Um, so that means 75% is being paid by the federal government grant. And then 25% is our, uh, the county match for that piece. So really exciting that we've got, um, a secured 185 acres of open space and, um, we're getting closer to closing on the entire property. Okay, so 185 acres of open space. What would that mean? What would that look like? Yeah, so um, so what it does is that Southern Lands will put a conservation easement on that property. Currently, the property is still owned by the York family. Um, then we will take that, that funding to a closing um, with the county. We'll bring our, our matching funds. The property could then be um, turned over to um, Summit County. So then we would be the owners. Um, and some of the discussions that we're having on that piece is to, after putting that conservation easement on it, um, resell that as a working, um, what we call a conservation buying ranch, which means that someone with conservation mind um, comes in, um, wants to use that ranch in, as a working ranch, keep it in agriculture, um, and then purchases that land from the county with, um, with the deed restrictions. So we strip off all the development. We put a lot of um, restrictions on how grazing can happen, where it can happen, if a building is put on the property where that can be. Um, we might reserve a home site on that property as well to make it more um, attractive to someone who would want to make that a working ranch. I see. So it's, so yeah, working ranch. So it's not land that would just be set aside uh, and you know, quote unquote left alone, um, but it could, could be returned as a working ranch. Yeah, correct. And you know, one of the things that we have to be careful with is following um, fields, um, it, which means just really quickly, you know, removing the, the historic practices on, on the property, you know, ungulates, um, which, you know, cows do, while they're not wildlife, they do have hooves, um, right. put in, you know, um, you know, can help with carbon sequestration by you know, putting holes in, into the meadows and, and keeping manure out on the meadows to just keep that whole process going and then allowing um, for the ranch to stay functioning, um, keeping water on the property as well, because a lot of that property is actually um, irrigated or flood irrigated. Um, and so we want to make sure that the, the water stays on the property and that that stays the way it's been in um, agriculture, um, you know, keeping that heritage piece and that rural piece of our, our county and, and also allowing for, you know, an affordable ranch that can continue in that process, you know, going forward. Right. So they, like you say, their hooves might break up the soil, et cetera, but I will, I will be your loyal opposition here. They also poop and pee like it's nobody's business. And so that, that has an environmental impact associated, depending on 
the number of ungulates and density, et cetera, and, 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 and grazing mm -hmm. practices, mm -hmm. right? Exactly. And so part of that conservation easement, um, part of the plan before we even consider a conservation buyer is we are working on a grassland and arrangement land management plan, which will inform how the animals are put on the property, how many animals can be on the property, how they need to be moved, where they can be, where they can put them be, um, you know, kind of stuff like that. Um, so there will be a range management plan that comes with that property that will guide the use uh, um, in perpetuity. And that would be something that would be part of the monitoring of the conservation easement. And it is, uh, you know, along the lines of that regenerative farm thinking, right? If you have plants that are used to that historically, that is what's happening when you have uh, herds of deer out coming through or cows that are grazing but moving on, but making that impact with manure and also the, the water resources and the carbon sequestration. So it's kind of just keeping it as is really, right? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So uh, that's, uh, we've got another uh, four or five minutes. Uh, anything else going on with your ranch before we turn to 910 property or so? Yeah, I do, I do want to mention we do have our second open house um, okay. happening this week on the 29th at 530 at the Camus Library. Um, so come out and um, give us comments. We're going to have a, a quick presentation and then an exercise where folks can put stickers on boards that they like, they don't like, and we're just going to kind of talk through some ideas that we're hearing from the community. Um, and then the only other thing that we're doing there is we're um, going to be doing an archaeological and a cultural study on, on the property. That's our next um, our move there. Ah, okay. Real quick, what, what would that involve? Well, there's some um, history um, out yeah. there, obviously. Um, the land's been there, um, and the the family has stories of Native American sites that they might have seen. Mm. Right? Who knows if it's folklore or not? And we really just want to make sure that we categorize and get a good baseline of the property before we do anything. Right, and, and with that information, th that might influence some further uh, future decisions about the property. Absolutely. About Absolutely. about let's say use or uh, setting it aside or so. Okay. Um, okay, so open house this this Thursday, the 29th, in Cam at the Camus Library. When does that start? 5.30. 5.30. And, okay, and uh, get more uh, information about that. Uh, you know, you'll be given a presentation and fielding questions, et cetera. That'll be great. Yeah. Um, with last couple minutes, any updates on the other little property you're working on, 910? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, we're eagerly awaiting a grant application that we have in right now. We should be hearing uh, hopefully in April, so fingers crossed for that. Um, and then I think the most exciting thing that's happened on the 910 since we last talked was um, we were working with a capstone project at the uh, Utah State University with their watershed science department. Um, we had six students work on a uh, feasibility study for creating a recreational fishery on the stream mm. um, through East Canyon Creek. It's, it's one of the most popular questions I get asked, can we fish, can we fish, can we fish? And right now the answer is no, um, because we want to make sure that it is a sustainable population of fish and that it can, um, you know, handle having an increased, um, you know, take from or even catch or release from, from the stream. Uh, they did a, a series of electrofishing out there and they did some fish counts and um, 
found out a lot of interesting information. Uh, one, that the stream is, is in need of some really significant restoration. Um, it's not in good shape. Uh, the stream upstream and downstream has uh, significant populations of fish that are not present on the ranch. And the lack of vegetation, water temperatures, dissolved oxygen, um, and just the lack of pools um, along that stretch of stream is impacting the ability to sustain a fishery there. Wow. And when we say fishery, we're talking trout primarily. Trout, yeah. And, you know, when they did their counts, uh, the most significant fish that they found was the red side shiner, which is a really small fish. It's like it's almost the size of a minnow. Mm -hmm. um, almost 70% of the fish that they saw were, were that species. Um, only seeing native populations of Bonneville cutthroat trout of 0 0.16. Um, and they saw significantly more, and I don't have those statistics with me, but significantly more Bonneville cutthroat above and below um, the ranch. And so there was some recommendations that they provided in the, in the report that um, kind of lead us to why that's happening. Well, you know, we, we have to wrap up, but let's, uh, let's put a pin in that conversation and, and have you on to talk more about what's going on and why that's happening and, and what might be the steps necessary to re kind of restore that stream so, so populations of those trout can come back yeah, to Yeah, and give you a area. little hint, it might have to do with the fact that we do not fence out the cattle on that property so we yes. can talk about that more later okay let's Absolutely. do that but uh real quick um can people go to website learn more about your work yeah um uh, if you go to summit county's website and um go to the county lands page um, we have a both a page for the 910 and your ranch um we've just hired on some more staff that we're going to be upgrading that information and making it more consumable and making it more up-to-date as things are occurring so Stay tuned there. All right. Jess Kirby, Summit County Lands and Natural Resources Director, thanks so much for joining us this morning on the show. Absolutely. Thanks for having me.